0: I'm Richard, and welcome to Esoteric's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 26th, 2014. Join us this week as we dip down to Long Beach, where Karsten Kansteiner shares the inspiration behind her popular establishment's Portfolio Coffeehouse in Berlin Bistro. We'll also visit with poet Joan Job Smith to hear about her mentor, Charles Bukowski, and how her writer's voice has evolved since the 1960s. So stay tuned. Los Angeles.
1: El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels.
0: The Day of the Locust. The slide area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear.
1: But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They
0: add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to Fifth and Main.
1: As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway.
0: Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city.
1: Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules.
0: Rainer Banham said that.
1: He taught us well.
0: In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation.
1: Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir. Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown. The Real Black Dahlia.
0: Positive public space. Endangered landmarks. Forgotten lore.
1: Memory maps. Mysteries. Murder.
0: The allocation of resources.
1: The hidden forces that shape public policy. Skid Row. Bunker Hill.
0: Preservation.
1: Restoration.
0: Redevelopment. It's
1: a four-letter word.
0: Los Angeles. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look.
1: And listen to the stories.
0: And pass them on. Why are we
1: doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason.
0: So did Rayner Banum.
1: So we did. Now let's begin.
2: You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long-lost neighborhood, called Hermina between
0: Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of May 26, 2014. Our guest this week will be Karsten Kastinger. She is the entrepreneur who runs Berlin Bistro and Portfolio Coffee in Long Beach, and will also be talking with Joan Job Smith. She is a poet. She has published, amongst many other books, Charles Bukowski, Epic Glottis, His Art, and His Women. And me. And we'll be talking to her at Charles Bukowski's grave. Kim, it's time to remind people about the Pishka.
1: That's right. It is a digital tip jar. It's associated with this podcast. And if you you like the show and you'd like to uh, contribute a little bit to help fund our travels, you can throw something digitally into the digital tip jar. A couple of bucks. 20 bucks, what have you, taco money, gas money. It helps us in our explorations around the Southland. It's never obligatory, but it's always appreciated. Thank you, listeners, for your support.
0: Kim, that, that omelet I made for you the other night at 11 o'clock at night that you really liked, those were eggs from the, the the dairy in Lakewood that we found.
1: Oh, those were like the best eggs I've ever had in my life. We have to go... That, that actually was in Cerritos, uh, they're two really groovy little 1940s dairies uh, down in Lakewood slash Cerritos. And apparently they have the best eggs, so that's something to stay tuned to, too. Let's
0: see the, the the tip jar. The, the, yeah. the tip jar. We got some honey and we got some of the milk from their dairy, too. It's very good. All right, so let's... Um, okay, Kim, we're going to move on to closely watched trains. And um, I'm looking at the list here and I've made an editorial decision that we're going to push um, the Zaha and Rufus to the top of the list. So why don't you just start with Rufus and take it away, and we'll we'll work our way through these.
1: Yeah, well, um, if you've been... Paying attention to our newsletters and podcasts, you know there's been an issue about the missing paku fish from the Bahukatiki restaurant, RIP, in the city of Rosemead. This giant, almost 40 year old fish named Rufus, who famously was right next to the cash register and you could feed him carrots, and he was a really sweet, very large You're fish. Using the past tense. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, because you can't visit him anymore. Anyway. May the fifth we happened to be driving past the Bahuka site. The doors were open. We stopped. We went in, and we discovered that the entire Tiki bar had been gutted. Um, not surprisingly wait, 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 not, not surprisingly i mean it was it was sold about a year ago it 's been um, It was closed at that time it 's since sold a couple of times. The Schneider family who ran it. I use the word ran loosely because by the end they really didn't care and, and this was demonstrated in numerous ways, the worst of which I will get to. Um they, they listed it. I think they were misled by their um realtor because it sold in less than twenty four hours, it's been flipped several times since and now um someone named uh mister Zhu is, is attempting rather slowly um to turn it into a new Chinese restaurant to be called Mayflower, two words. Uh, We went inside, just inside the door, and and spoke to one of the construction workers and asked about Rufus because there was nothing inside. There weren't even really walls anymore. And uh, he sort of indicated to us that Rufus was fine. Um, Shot a little video as we were walking through, all the same, because how can Rufus be fine? I mean, there's been this huge to-do, including the Los Angeles Times front-page story about... If you want to move Rufus, it's very difficult. They're delicate, and various parties wanted to take Rufus, including Damon's, the tiki restaurant in Glendale, which has some interesting film noir connotations, but that's a sidebar. Anyway... Our video went online, it was shared with uh, the Tiki Central message board, and this sort of triggered some additional information coming out because uh, we didn't realize when we went down there and looked that um, in the last few weeks people had been hearing rumors um, from someone
0: Last few weeks as of the beginning of the month of May.
1: Right. In, in April, rumors were spreading from uh, one of the vendors of scrap coming out of the Bahuka that Mr. Zhu had taken beloved Rufus, delicate paku fish, who could perhaps be moved to Damon's if he gave the okay, um, that he had put Rufus in a river in Long Beach or a pond also in Long Beach, which is interesting because this is our Long Beach-themed episode. Anyway, people were flipping out. And then the vendor, after making some suggestions that he had some additional information, um, finally uploaded a photo of what he claimed was Rufus, uh, clearly a different fish. So really weird stuff going on. This has all gone viral in the last week with a post on um, Theme Park Adventure, adventure. blog, and... um, Information still filtering out, very, very confusing as to what has happened to this, you know, rather beloved fish. Couldn't tell you because there's no straight answer coming, but hopefully uh, some of the journalists who covered the closing of the bahooka and the campaign to find a new home for Rufus, um, including the Los Angeles Times, will continue to cover the story because... Mr. Zoo is only uh, letting out little dribbles and drabs of information, and, and we want to see a proof of life of Rufus.
0: Okay, so Kim, besides besides you wanting to see a photo of Rufus in an aquarium setting with yesterday's newspaper being yes. shown, yes. besides, besides uh, today's newspaper...
1: Right? Uh, I will settle for yesterday's.
0: Okay, yeah. yeah. Okay, sh- besides that, and you've done a very good job of explaining what is obviously... A seething front of anxiety, anticipation, misunderstanding, and 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 a lot of other things. I, if if you could just quickly, because we've you, you you've given us a really good overview, but I think you've you've failed to outline some of the major concerns that the parties seeking clarification and transparency in Rifus's situation. Would you please identify some of the major issues? that are hobbling uh, the transparency uh, surrounding Rufus's existence and well-being?
1: Well, I mean, fundamentally, uh, animals are property. And when the Schneiders sold the property um, to the first buyer and then... was flipped. You know, eventually these fish became, and there wasn't just Rufus. I mean, there were hundreds of fish in the building, including other large Paku, but Rufus was the one with the name and the personality. And, you know, he's the movie star. He was in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Everybody loved Rufus. Um, You know, uh, they they simply, they're valuable commodities. And in Rufus's case, he's an attraction. I think that when the LA Times story came out, it it was kind of a shock to Mr. Zoo. And, and, you know, the guy's a, a businessman. The decision was made not to give the fish up. And if the fish did die, no one's gonna be happy about that.
0: Right. Okay. And and so you just really answered my question, got to the point of my question, and now you can answer it. So what role has the media played in in either helping or hindering the transparency around Rufus's condition and well-being?
1: well being? It's been a freaking nightmare. I mean, you know, the LA Times go, went in and and created a great kerfuffle, but nothing actually happened. You know, that the Times left the uh, suggestion that the deal with Damon's was was happening. It wasn't. There was no done deal. And and you know, a couple of days later, maybe even one day later, um, they did. They actually did a follow up, and Mr. Zhu said, "I'm keeping the fish," because you know the. Time story showed how valuable it was. In the meantime, there are all these, you know, really sweet, well-meaning tiki people in the background, just trying to do the right thing. And it's really, really hard to negotiate these sorts. Of, you know, this is not a standard preservation issue. It is an attempt to transfer real property of value from one owner to another. And uh, there's some recalcitrants there. And I think there's a, a real have to say it. I mean, there's language issues, there's cultural issues, we're dealing with the newly Chinese San Gabriel Valley, you know, uh, Bahuka wouldn't have sold if the San Gabriel Valley weren't changing as fast as it is, and if property weren't so valuable. Although, Schneider's, you got ripped off, and you left Rufus behind, and that's your karma.
0: Okay, Kim, thank you. And I'm going to remind everyone just to keep us in the spiritual mind about this, because... That is always a good meditation when we leave an issue that is so confounding and um, uh, this, is, this is very ambiguous. It's a lot of pain and ambiguity, and it's not going to get any better.
1: Yeah, and if you go over to the Tiki Central message board, which you can find um, from, we'll, we'll link to our blog post, which in a very short blog post, but it has the video embedded and it links to the Tiki Central thread. You'll find Tiki people basically at each other's throats over this issue. And it's super, super sad, and I hope the truth comes out. And if, if Rufus has gone to the great pond in the sky, <laughs> you know, God bless him. But as long as we don't know, people still need to worry and wonder and try to find the truth.
0: Thank you, Kim. So I will, as I said, I will attempt to close with a, with a, with a, with a meditation on the spiritual mind, the spiritual side of this, which is we live in a world of effect. We're here because of what we do. And everyone involved gets to think about that. Okay, Kim, we, um, we have some nice updates about closely watched trains in the recent past. And again, I'm going to let you take the lead on this. We have a series of editorials in both the Los Angeles Times and the Pasadena Star News about the Zaha Madre and what's going on there.
1: Yeah, and the Pasadena Star News is in all the daily newspapers. Um. You know it is just sort of a nice coda to the advocacy and the um, communications that we 've been sending out and the information we 've been gathering about the completely failed and unfortunate archaeological in quotes dig taking place out at the former little joe 's location in Chinatown, where the zaha Madre, the original mother ditch water aqueduct of the city of Los Angeles, was uncovered as expected in March the um, Property developers were required by the city as part of this project to have an archaeologist on site, but they magically failed to find this giant archaeological feature crossing their property after sinking several um, sinkholes. It's not boreholes, not sinkholes. They did core samples, they They missed it, oops, somehow, and then because they missed it, they didn't have to have the archaeological um, team or the archaeologist singular on site when they dug for their five-story deep parking lot. Of course, they then revealed and began to damage the Zaha Madre, and it's um, just a complete disaster. Then once they had found it, an attempt was made um, to privately move some of it, funded by a private foundation. That section that was moved was destroyed by improper removal. And, you know, we've been trying to generate uh, awareness of the fact that still between 40 to 100 feet of undestroyed Zaha exists on the northern portion of the property line facing towards the river. Um, And these two editorials, which came out bang, bang, one day after another, said, you know, the same thing that we've been saying. The city needs to step up to the plate and do a proper preservation in place. Um, The property developers say, you know, we don't own this artifact, it belongs to the city. The city doesn't want to take responsibility. Um, The councilman of the district, Gil Cedillo, got involved working with the developer, and with this private foundation um, to move the section that was destroyed, and the people moving the section destroyed all sorts of artifacts that they sucked out of the interior of the Zaha Madre, which ceased flowing um, in the early 1900s. You know, the photograph of construction workers standing on fragile glass bottles that are on their way to the dump is something we never need to see again in the city of L.A. Now, you know, the city... um, Didn't really want to hear from us when we suggested that perhaps it would be a good idea to have some sort of public meeting about what had gone on. We did reach out to the mayor's office and asked for that. That didn't happen. But now we have two editorials in two out of the now three daily papers that the city of Los Angeles has. Uh, uh, Mayor Garcetti, what more do you need? Clearly, this is being done the wrong way. Let's... Save the Zaha. Let's save anything that's left. Let's not let this happen again. The history of Los Angeles matters to a lot of people, and you can't do this stuff. I'm not talking to the mayor. I'm talking now to developers. You can't do this stuff secretly. You know this was all visible from the Gold Line platform.
0: Kim, let's um, thank you. Let's um, as we wrap this up, let's make a proper list of of who should be listening when you ask for a uh, Comprehensive, empathic, and comprehensive, empathic, and comprehensive, empathic, and Mm forward-thinking public policy on the Zaha Madre future excavations and future interpretation. Uh, The office of the mayor, the office of historic resources, which is headed up by Ken Bernstein, who has already had some very responsive back and forth with us on this topic. Hats off to Ken, in this long list of people that don't always get hats tipped off to. Thank you, Uh, CD1, Gil Cedillo. Okay, well, every council district in which the Zaha resides, I think, at this moment. It is only CD1. No, no, no. It's
1: It's, down by USC as well, so so that's
0: that's CD... CD9, redistricting every council member. Uh, It's redistricting. Council districts, the Office of the Mayor, the Office of Historic Resources, Building and Safety, and... Developers. All developers and all bodies who oversee CEQA reviews. That could be the state, it could be the city, it, it depends. But every every official entity who becomes the supervising body for CEQA review, California Environmental Quality Act. Okay, so Kim, thank you, and we'll look forward to updates on that. Let's talk about more developers. Let's talk about Jeff Palmer and his pedestrian bridge over Temple at Beaudry.
1: It's actually adorable. Um, the, the builder of these monolithic compounds, the, these fortresses meant to contain USC college students. students. No, undergraduates. Graduate <laughs> right. students don't live like that. Very expensive apartments which are prone to terrible robbery sprees. I mean, they're, they're, they're some of the most crime-ridden properties in the city this is documented, actually put in a request to be able to build one of their sky bridges, the, uh, the, the the bridges connecting two of these large compounds, which, by the way, never have any rentals for retail. They build storefronts, and then they never rent them out. So they just create these borgs in the city, and they're, they're all over downtown. Um, but it, and-
0: it, it does provide a dating pool for Nathan Marsak their, out of their employees,
1: that was some years ago, and I don't think he does that anymore. But anyway, um, actually in the request to be able to build this sky bridge at the new property, which is perhaps the worst site yet in terms of freeway closeness. You really you, you want to get out of here while you're an undergrad because you certainly don't want to get pregnant while living in one of these properties. Your baby will die. Oh, did I say that? Um, that's uh, satire. Um, actually, in, in, in the application to... <laughs> City council for the waiver to allow them to build the sky bridge. They said, "We don't want our tenants to have to deal with the homeless people who live under the freeway." Oh boy.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And they got it.
0: Yeah, that's that's what I want to close this watch train on. Um, the, the the planning commission, PLUM, the uh, the central uh, the central area advisory committee for planning uh, voted against this. And somehow, with a committee voting against it, full council voted for it, which is really interesting.
1: It's a disgrace, and and well, it's it's
0: it's it's not a disgrace, Kim, but it's it's interesting. Usually, it works the other way. Committees who are charged with the task of closely looking at these problems, and who are vested with these with the decisions as a committee vote and if the vote is negative it goes to council and council usually Takes tends advice, to take really. the lead on that because council is not vested is doesn't have time to explore the issues as the committee does
1: well maybe you know as with the improper sighting of the Woody Guthrie Square sign at Fourth and Main when it's supposed to be at Fifth and Main on the, the nickel, the historic heart of Skidrow. Maybe council, you know, just meant to vote something else and, and they made a mistake and then it was implemented in the wrong way. We shall wait and see. But we can never let mention of Jeff Palmer pass without reminding everyone listening. This is the developer who knocked down the last Victorian house still standing on the edge of Bunker Hill, the last piece of Victorian Bunker Hill, illegally knocked down on a Sunday by a bulldozer intentionally in order to build one of these compounds, and a slap on the wrist and a few thousand dollar fine, and I think a, a slight delay in construction was the result. And, boy, that is a sad, shameful thing to do.
0: Thank you, Kim. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try and talk about some happy... Things now on the watch terrain section. For what time we have left, we're going to talk about the uh, the Citizens Committee to Save Elysian Park and their program to begin repopulating the Palm Grove on Stadium Way in Elysian Park, which has almost has over hundred year old Canary Island palms, which are dying thanks to the lack of insight or understanding of the Parks and Recs department. Um, These Oh, these trees are what thirty? These trees are like forty feet high. They're 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 rare. Fifty, six? Yeah, they're really tall. Yeah, probably fifty, sixty feet high. Um, the the interesting thing is is that is that the the the, the non the citizens group, committee, uh, the citizens committee to save Illusion Park, they're replacing them with three foot tall palms. So it's it's going to take a good thirty years for these palms to get to. The, but at least they're.
1: Yeah, they're replacing them with a different breed. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But the reason that this happened in the first place is you can't go from... Listen, you have to practice safe palm sex. If you trim a palm tree... <laughs> I'm talking to you, palm tree trimmers in our audience. actually all trees. Yeah, you have to clean your blades. You can. You can... You can Convey disease from tree to tree, and that's what happened. Um, and that's why these beautiful trees that are named after the great Los Angeles illustrator of Bunker Hill, among other things, Leo Politi, um, named for his centennial, I believe, in his honor, are are dying now.
0: Yeah, Grace Grace Simons. She was uh, she was a, a French journalist. She was married to a communist labor organizer. They moved to Echo Park in the late thirties. She founded the uh, the Citizen's Committee to Save Illusion Park, and she was its president through the late '80s in her death. I will note uh, out of irony that Grace died at Barlow Respiratory Hospital. Yes, Grace died the president of the, the president of the Citizens Committee to Save Illusion Park died at Barlow Respiratory Hospital
1: which is in the shadow of these now dying palms what, what, what better place to die and it 's endangered as well they want to turn it into a massive residential mixed-use compound. No,
0: no, no. All right, so just, I'm glad they're replacing them. Um, If you want to listen to our friend Scott's podcast about his 29 Palms project, you can get all the information you ever wanted to know about uh, the Chilean wine palm. They're very interesting trees. And I hope, they grow quickly, and I hope I hope this goes well. Kim, I just want to quickly point out because we are big sign geeks and we do like Broadway that the Globe Theater at Eighth and Broadway, the uh, northeast corner. It's origi- not the corner. Well, it's oh. just it's it's, it's okay. It's lock. it's one building north of the corner.
1: I take okay. the corner s- seating very very oh, carefully.
0: Okay, okay, it's it's just there at Eighth and Broadway. Right there, you can't miss it. It's got a nice big 1942 marquee. The Globe. It was built originally in 1913. Morgan Walls and Morgan, um, Morgan Walls and Morgan built the Garland Building that contained the Morasco Theater, as it was called when it was open. Morgan Walls, Morgan Walls, of course, built the Merced Theater, 1870. Right. This is Morgan Walls and Clements built the Belasco and the Mayan. About a decade later, so this, these are the great theater architects of Los Angeles, Alfred Rosenheim, who designed, Alfred Rosenheim, the architect, designed the theater design, he's credited with that, he also built the May Company, what would become the May Company, he built the hamburgers department store, the People's store across the street, uh, about six years earlier. The sign, 1942, because it changed names several times. 42, it was renamed the Globe. The, the the newsreel It was called the Newsreel Theater during World War. Uh, the beginning of World War II, right before that, they moved that up the street to the Tower, and they renamed it the Globe, and they gave it this spinning globe sign. And they're going to restore that. Okay, so this is this is very exciting. Broadway signage has been. Not on everyone's mind, but a lot of people's minds. They're talking about new ordinances for signage, and and so let's just think positively. I will, I think with confidence we can say that the last neon sign renovation on Broadway was a complete disaster.
1: I'm afraid you're right. The um, the Urban Outfitters Rialto sign was done improperly, and it ended up with some crooked neon. Uh, How you make a straight line crooked, I don't know. Um, And it's burning out already, but we're hoping that they uh, didn't cheap out on the Globe, and we shall wait and see. It's always great to see a sign come back, especially when it's done accurately, historically accurately, carefully by artisans. So here's to it.
0: Thank you, Kim. I believe the Globe Theater was where Shakespeare used to perform his plays.
1: On Broadway, yes.
0: Okay, Kim. All right. Kim, let's just look ahead to some events before we get to the interviews. We've got, um, we're, we're, we're in the month, we're looking into the month of June now, so we've got a June salon coming up. Uh, Milt Stevens is going to be talking about uh, science fiction writers. He's a member of the Science Fiction Fantasy Club, which is uh, the oldest science fiction fantasy club, started at Clifton's Cafeteria. Well, early, early, early meetings, its first p- proper meeting, I believe, was in the Calif- was in the uh, the uh, Pacific Electric Building at Sixth and Main in some rooms that the California Club let them use. But,
1: Close enough for science fiction.
0: Yeah. <laughs> then, within a couple of meetings, they moved to Clifton's for for several decades. For and, the Jello. Yeah. <laughs> the tie-in with Milt's talk is, of course, uh, Jack Parsons was a member of this society, attended the Clifton's meetings, and the second talk will be by. Uh, the Star Sapphire Lodge's uh, own Craig Barry, he'll be talking about Jack Parsons. He'll be talking about Jack Parsons not just as a science fiction aficionado, but Jack Parsons as a member of the OTO, Uh, Jack Parsons as a rocket scientist, and really connecting all the dots, or a lot of dots. I guess it's, it's better for Jack if no one connects all the dots. But, uh, um, a, a actually,
1: w- in, in this case, we're connecting stars.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes. So that's going to be fantastic. And that, the date on that is uh, the, the 29th of, of June. So please come to that. We've got the weekend before that, uh, June 22. We've got our Ellen Canto tour, which we forgot to send out in our newsletter last week. And I'm very embarrassed, and I hope Richard Gorman forgives us. He didn't mean it. It's and
1: a month out. I don't put lava events in the Esoteric newsletter right away. Okay, it's in cool. the lava calendar. If you don't subscribe to the lava calendar, what are you doing? Okay,
0: so we're, we're excited about El Encanto. El Encanto is this flagship of a failed housing development, Midwick Acres, which developer Peter Schneider developed not acres. Fit Midwick Estates. Thank you. Midwick really Estates.
1: Acres.
0: Midwick Estates. Uh, Peter Schneider developed in the late 1920s the crash Meant the end of the real estate development, but Ellen Conto and its axially aligned Cascade Spark remain. Peter Schneider, gifted them to the city of Monterey Park, which has been under their stewardship, it's on and off since then. More on than off lately, and currently on, and we hope to keep it that way. And uh, we will uh, continue to keep you updated. And I hope everyone comes because, of course, our good friend Brian Kaiser will be there to talk about the Calco and the DNM tile, which is spectacular. So all Southern California tile aficionados should attend this event.
1: And lovers of hand-forged iron? Yeah. The place is filled with dragons and tigers and wonderful things. Come and find them all. There'll be a prize.
0: Good. Okay. I'm going to turn the page because we're at the interview section. Okay, Okay, here we go. go. All right. My first interview... Will be with Carsten, so I will introduce our second interview first. Our second interview will be with Joan Jib Smith. Joan Jib Smith is, uh, in addition to her being author of the the book, Charles Bukowski: Epic Glottis, His Art and His Women and Me. I think that's uh, gives you a pretty good sense of what that book is about. In addition, she's <laughs> written a number of books of poetry. She's also the founding editor of Pearl Magazine. I'm going to read you just. I'm going to read this quotation from, from the website because this is really good. Pearl Magazine was founded in 1974 by Joan Job Smith while she was an undergraduate at California State University Long Beach. The first two issues, May 1974 and December 1974, were funded by the Cal State University Long Beach's honors program. For want of being typeset and different, these issues featured calligraphy exclusively by Smith and other women. Also, according to his then-girlfriend Linda King, a bemused Charles Bukowski, who was seldom excluded from any small press magazines, let alone an upstart like Pearl, threatened to submit poetry using a feminine pseudonym for his poetry, which certainly would have made the small press a landmark of particularly absurd and humorous enormity. One more note. Along with a photo of him, Charles Bukowski, and Ms. King, vis-a-vis on a waterbed, Bukowski did appear in the third edition of Pearl, a 500-issue run in April of 1975. Bukowski would have been featured in the fourth issue of Pearl, projected to be a male pig issue, but Joan ran out of money. <laughs> Twelve years later, in February of 1987, Pearl was finally resurrected from the deep. So, we, <laughs> Joan... Joan is said, "I love Joan so much she 's so great, so we 're going to interview Joan at charles bukowski 's grave in Palos Verdes, and um, she 's just
1: where she um, showed a little leg because he liked that sort of thing, and uh, then the wind blew, and we had to hide in the car. It was wonderful out there
0: yeah we we, we did have to actually conduct the interview with the, the, the back door of our car open and her sitting in the back seat and my, my my kneeling to, to yeah it was because it was so. Okay, uh, just I'm not. We're just gonna go ahead. We're just gonna let that interview go because she talks about everything. Okay, and she's one of my favorite people in the world. My second, my first interview, the one that that we're gonna um, that we're gonna segue into now, is is Kristen Carsten, and and she is the entrepreneur who started about 20 years ago Portfolio Coffee on Fourth Street, and she just recently opened Berlin Bistro, which is. Both these are in Long Beach. Uh, Portfolio is on Fourth Street. It's an anchor for Retro Row. Uh, we're going to soon do an interview, a rec- an interview with Fred Voss, Joan's husband, at Portfolio Coffee, with him reading his famous Fourth Street poem. So Portfolio is on Fourth Street, just a little east of Berlin Bistro, and Berlin Bistro is in uh, downtown Long Beach proper, and. Karsten's great. Okay, we just, you know, I want it, you know, I love it. One of my favorite things is is setting up interviews with people you've never met. And and, and 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 Karsten was very happy. I could tell she was like, this is going to be great. And, you know, so we just sit down, and she has absolutely no idea who I am. And so I just, you know, the voice in my head said, you know, I just watched this really great Peter O'Toole film called Night of the Generals, and I just started telling her about this really great film about... A German general in the final days of the Third Reich who's a serial killer and is assigned to the demolition of the ghetto in warsaw, and how that his work in, as a serial killer continues in paris and the, the whole the, the, the denouement of, 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 of the novel and the film uh, comes during valkyrie the uh, Valkyrie the uh, assassination of Hitler. and I just spend like like eight eight or ten minutes probably explaining this amazing film about. Peter O'Toole as a German general who's a sociopath. And I realized, oh, maybe I've bored her, but I I don't think I did. And so that's that's how we started to get to know each other. And um and so I guess that doesn't really tell you anything about her more. So we'll just um she's genius. She she tells us all the motivations that these two wonderful places, which are great anchors for culture in Long Beach, came out of motivations. Her motivations, the situations, and the architectural aesthetic, which is, of course, grounded in, well, we'll just get into all of that. So let's let's take it away with my interview with Karsten. (laughs) Karsten, Karsten, I'm here with you. We're in your coffee shop. Berlin Cafe in Long Beach, and I want you to properly introduce yourself and tell us about your coffee shops in general in Long Beach.
3: Okay, so my name is Kasten, which, um, if you read it written out, you would say it's Kirsten, but it's actually Kasten because it's a German first name. I was born in Germany and I moved here about in 1989 to Long Beach and I came as a student, I um, have a degree in marketing, and I came to Long Beach and I found it difficult to meet people, to make friends, because in the United States at the time, cafes were non-existent. You you know, going to a place, meeting people without drinking alcohol, was a new concept. So I opened Portfolio Coffee House in 1990, here in Long Beach, and we are right now the second oldest cafe in Long Beach. Um, we're a coffee house. We have live music. We have poetry readings. We have open mic nights. We serve little light foods. You know, we're, we're a community cafe, and we're there for the community. Um, and that's what makes us such a big part of Long Beach. And we're proud to do that because it's what makes it fun, and that's what I enjoy.
0: Perfect. Okay, let's take a breath. You're doing great. You take a breath. You're doing great. Everything's great. Okay, tell us the hours of Portfolio and tell us uh, Cross Streets.
3: Portfolio is open seven days a week. We open at 5.30 in the morning until 10 p.m. Except for Saturday and Sundays, we open at 6.30 in the morning. We are located at the corner of 4th Street and Junipro, Correctly pronounced Junipero from Junipero Serra. Many people refer to it as Juan So if you're a Juan person, <laughs> it is at Juan We say Junipero.
0: Perfect. And, and so you're, you're, do you, do you want to, um, we're going to do a little backstory on Pofrell. I want you to talk about the mattress okay. shop and maybe just a little bit about 4th Street in general? Because you've seen, you've, you've seen, you're kind of a part of 4th Street. Mm-hmm. And it's, so just give us, give us a, a couple minutes on this, because this is interesting.
3: Okay. Fourth Street, um, we are now called Retro Row. Many years ago, co- ago, we were called Funky Fourth Street. And the <laughs> funky comes from... It was a little funky there. Um, back when we opened Portfolio... 1989, 1990, um, Portfolio Space was actually a mattress store. It was called Al Greenwood's Bedspread Kingdom. And the entire building was filled from top to bottom with mattresses. (laughs) And the man that ran it named himself, he called himself the king, and um, he moved to another location. But many years later, he came to Portfolio and he sat at the counter. And he looked at me and I was working and he said, do you know who I am? And I said, I apologize, I don't know who you are. And he said, I am the king. And I thought, wow. And it it, it just, my brain just went, this must be Al Greenwood. I didn't think there's crazy in front of me. This is the man that, that, you know, was here for 30 years, sold mattresses, and he is the king. So that's how I met Al Greenwood. So, and kind of 4 was did, like,
0: did you give him a free cup of coffee?
3: I did not give him a free cup of coffee because we we're both, we're business people and we both <laughs> understood that this is... He sells mattress, I sell coffee. We both have to exist. And he never even asked. So, but that's how funky Fushi came. Many of the stores had interesting history. Many of them were boarded up. And, and over time, four-sheet really turned. And now it's become the retro central of, of Southern California people come from Japan and fly to 4th Street and shop on 4th because there's Meow Vintage right. um, and she, you know, she's equipped many, many movies, she's, you know, the one that, that dresses Madman. Yeah. Um, so it, it's become a destination and portfolio is just weathered through the years and still around and, you know, at one point it was, it was time to take the next step.
0: Oh, okay, but before we take a step, we're, we're almost, we're ready to get to Berlin. Um, I want you just to give us a little bit more about the inter- about what happens at Portfolio Night like with readings and stuff. Just just wrap that up and, and and we'll we'll tie up Portfolio and then we'll get to this fantastic space we're in at Berlin.
3: Um, so Portfolio is, you know, being part of the community. We've always done entertainment, um, and there's a long story to Long Beach and entertainment because it. it Technically, you need an entertainment license, and we had to jump through hoops, and, and we actually got this done at one point that we did not need an entertainment license. We actually can have a jazz combo play with us, and we can have some, some folk musicians or indie musicians play with us. Um, and um, we're grateful for that because it's part of, you know, part of who we are. Um, we were the first ones to do poetry readings in the early 90s. And, um, and again, it's an outlet for people to come. And many people that come to us say, you know, that it is absolutely phenomenal, the, the range of clientele. You have the business person sitting next to the person, you know, that has tattoos from, from head to toe. And they're from 90 to 9 years old or younger. So it's it's very diverse, and that's what makes it interesting. And that's, I think, you know, I hope that people love coming there because of that as well.
0: Okay, good. Okay, now we're ready. Okay, we're ready to talk about Berlin, your, your, your new cafe. And I'm going to preface this by, in our, our pre-interview, our warm-up conversation before this, you, 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 you were talking very, telling me wonderful stories about having just been to East Berlin, and the preservation in East Berlin, and the conversion of spaces. So let's just start with that and bring us back here into this fantastic
3: space. So I, as I mentioned before, I was born in Germany and I have the luxury to travel to Germany here and there. And so I'd just been to Germany and, and I'd just been to East Berlin because that's where really where everything happens. It's beautiful. Art everywhere, you know, just magnificent buildings everywhere. So it's, it's, it was really a joy. And what I saw in East Berlin was old, old, old buildings that just, you know, fortunately nobody got to touch for many, many years. And so they were lovingly restored on the outside. And then you walk in the interior and it's, it's bright, it's modern, it's, it's, it's open. You know, there's just a real sense of space. And I wanted to bring that back here. And, and you know, times were at a point in my life where I felt like there is room for one more cafe and that's that's how berlin was born so and um i found this amazing building and the owner was in the process of of you know redoing it and had big plans and and my friend rand and i convinced him not to destroy the building by completely you know modernizing it we wanted the old bones and if you ever come here and visit us you will see that we have the old brick walls, the rafters are originals, everything here to the floor, everything is original in the building. We just opened it up and um, left the walls white. We wanted the building to speak for itself, so this is not a, a funky paint job or anything. No, it's clean white walls, old brick buildings, old wood, everything's made out of recycled materials. And that's how Berlin was born.
0: Cross-street hours.
3: We are located on Fourth Street, and I will never apparently get off Fourth Street in my life. I've heard that many times. We're on Fourth Street between Elm and Linden. Technically, it's called Downtown Long Beach, and we are open daily from um, six thirty a.m. until ten p.m.
0: Perfect. Okay, I I, I told you I was going to ask you this question. When we started the interview. I'm just going to go ahead and ask you. Tell us something about Berlin that that you've barely, we haven't talked about it long. Tell us. Tell us something. Something interesting about this place
3: so um, before Rand and actually, uh, Rand and I actually opened Berlin and, and fingerprints, we were nervous. This is um, not a location that is for the faint of heart. you would say it 's downtown long beach it 's in a neighborhood that that can go either way, so both of us parked our cars many nights outside and we sat in the car and we looked and then we discussed that we you know probably should hire a security guard to guard our our new clientele. From whatever was lurking outside. And now that we are open, we always laugh because, you know, the, it's, it's almost the complete opposite. You know, the neighborhood was just cooped up in these high rise apartment buildings and they've never left, and all of a sudden we were like a sponge. We opened up and, and people just flocked here, and it's mostly actually. People, you know, just with business suits, and they are just, they're just love coming here. So we always look back laughing that at one point we thought we needed to hire a security guard to be here. So never needed.
0: Perfect. Did it. Recap. Portfolio, Berlin, and I'm going to thank you. This was fantastic. Yeah, so just, yeah, tell, just tell us a portfolio in Berlin's hours. Oh, Just okay. before we go. Okay.
3: Um, again, Portfolio Coffee House is open daily from uh, 5.30 a.m. until 10 p.m., except for Saturday and Sunday, so we open at 6.30. And Berlin is open from 6.30 until 10 p.m. daily. Kirsten, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. My name is Gail Pierce, and I'm here at the Neff House in Neff Park, La Mirada, California. And you are listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. <laughs>
0: Joan. Joan, I'm here with you. We're at Green Hill Cemetery in Palos Verdes. I want you to properly introduce yourself and tell us the occasion for our visit today.
4: Well, we're here to visit Charles Bukowski's grave.
0: And and, and who are you?
4: I am Joan Jobe Smith.
0: Okay. And... and Despite your, your timidity on this topic, you, you you have a very strong connection and a long history with Charles Bukowski, your literary mentor. So I'm hoping you could share with us a bit of your path that you walked with Bukowski and, and how it led to you to finding your own voice within you, which is great.
4: Well, I met him when I was a undergrad student at Cal State Long Beach when I was producing a literary journal called Pearl. And published his girlfriend, then girlfriend Linda King. I'd read him. I just read uh, "The Days Run Away" from what like "The Days Run Away Like Wild Horses Over the Hills," and and I thought this is it. this is the best poet I've ever read. I really like this man. And then soon I got to meet him at a reading he gave at Cal State. And afterwards, I talked to him and Linda, and we hit it off. Bukowski and Linda King his girlfriend and I and eventually Bukowski and I began to correspond writing letters and talking on the telephone and we talked a lot about literature we had uh, an unusual relationship that way that he didn't have with other women Uh, we didn't um, it wasn't romantic between us he had a his girlfriend that he was in love with madly linda king and he and i were really literary confreres at the time and i got to hear stories that of his that he was getting ready to to write into poetry and and he was writing i think at the time he was working on uh, ham on rhyme factotum actually factotum and and i sent him my poems as new writers often do when they meet a a famous poet you just can't help yourself especially when they like your work and i mailed him some poems and he liked them and we talked about it and and late at night he called me when he and linda would be broken up or or uh... she had left him again fleeing off to utah and i told him my stories that had happened to me when i had been a go-go girl for seven years and he had lived in the bars of course he had spent a lot of time there and uh he wrote a lot about his his experiences and his fist fights and his drinking bouts and and bar flies and skid row and, and in a way i had worked in Bad part of town too, except the go-go bars. I worked at, like the Whiskey and the Playgirl Club, were nice places. And uh, but the scandal involved with being a go-go girl then was was pretty unusual, considering these days when what's going on in the in the world of entertainment. And back in those days, bikinis were banned on California state beaches and. So it was pretty, well, it was scandalous, I'll have to say that, but it's so silly now to think about it. But I told Bikowski my stories about the girls I worked with and the men I'd met, and he told me to write about it. And so I did. And good, bad, or ugly, or smugly, I, I did write them, and thanks to him, and how he was my mentor was just not the content that he encouraged me to go for and tell it like it is the way he wrote but the narrative style the storytelling style and the and, and the the inclusion of of characters in dialogue and conversation between people and i liked that about his work it came alive for me to know that these were little scenarios, and they really gave it a, a veracity that this had really happened. And he began to, uh, t- well, he meant so much to me, and I went to his readings. I, I, they, the groupie wasn't uh, in the vernacular then, the way it is now, but that's what you might liken me to, except that I went with friends And I'd be sitting in the audience with his girlfriend, Linda. And I saw about 13 of his readings over the years from Laguna Beach, Moulton uh, Theater during the Arts Festival in 1975. And I saw him at the Golden Bear, the the legendary Golden Bear in Huntington Beach next to the pier. And uh, I saw him there twice, and they closed down and got rid of the golden beer. I maybe ten, fifteen, twenty years ago. I forget. Maybe thirty. It's been gone now. And let's see where else. I saw him at Cal State several times. And I saw him at uh, the Bodega Bar in Long Beach. And it was so much fun to be there and and hear him interact with the the audience and how they loved him and and the bars. Were the best to hear him read because they'd be re- drinking right along with them and there'd be a lot of camaraderie and hooping and hollering and his true fans would be there. Nobody heckled. Well, he got heckled quite a bit.
0: Can, can you tell us your favorite heckling story about the feminists?
4: Yes, at the well, I won't tell you where it was because those feminists might remember this and 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 uh. I don't know. They might say, "Oh, I was there." That wasn't the way I remember it. Well, actually, I will say one was at Cal State Long Beach, and the other one—I won't tell you where that one was—but it seemed like the women. I don't know why the, the the women's liver at the time didn't like him. They just didn't realize how much he honored women in his writing. How us women are are the stars of practically every one of his poems and. And I don't think he's written one book that uh, the, the essential uh, heart's rob of it was some, some interesting woman. And, uh, and uh, oh, his women are always fascinating, always, whether they, you know, knock him to the ground and scream at him from the balcony or just love him to death in the waterbed. But the feminists used to come, and they'd sit in the front row, and they'd start to heckle him. And one night, one of the feminists shouted out, Why don't you ever write about your mother? And Bukowski said, Oh, my mother died before I was born. <laughs> and uh, so they'd heckle him some more. One of the use oh, here's one I'm remembering. I've got to start remembering these. I have written about it, it's all in the book about Bukowski I, I wrote, Epic Glottis. And uh, so I'm starting to forget it, so I'm glad I wrote it down. But here's one. One of the feminists yelled out, Why do you use so many dirty words? And he said, uh, Give me an example. What's a dirty word? And so the woman just didn't say anything. And uh, let's see. Oh, that's all I can remember for now. But eventually, Bukowski would uh, seem like he deliberately read one of his most raunchy poems (laughs) and one that uh, was a a poem and it's in um, Love is a Dog from Hell, the one about, you know, the one about, oh, can I say, you You, you, know, can I say,
0: you can say, you know what, you you can say fellatio,
4: I can say, okay, I can say fellatio, she was willingly performing fellatio and very much enjoying it. And Bukowski in that passage in in the poem, I'll have to remember the title so people can go look at it really quick. And I think it's a big scene in um, his book *Women*. And so uh, he he's describing the the energy involved and the and the machinations of it and and the conclusion of it. And it was right about then that all the women got up in mass. And left uh, and walked down the aisle together. And Bukowski said after they left, "Well, now we got rid of them. Now I can really read some good poems. Read you my good stuff."
0: So. <laughs> okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. I need you. The last time I heard, the second to last time I heard you talk, you gave an amazing timeline of Los Angeles culture from about 1966 to the release of Geek Throat in the context of go-go clubs. Can you, can you just quickly recap that for us? Because I've got to say, this is really one of the, the, the best summations of Los Angeles culture I've ever heard.
4: Okay, well, imagine this. This is back in the 60s, and, and in 1965, bikinis are banned on California state beaches. And miniskirts were banned. I mean, Anne Margaret, if you remember who she is, got kicked out of the Brown Derby for trying to get in with a miniskirt on that was like three or four inches, maybe three inches above her kneecap. Denied admission into Brown Derby. And then, let's see, from suddenly in 66 to uh, about 1967, came the love-ins. Griffith Park had love-ins where... Young, beautiful, 16, 17-year-old girls were pulling off their their uh, madras cloth, uh, long dresses, and shaking their... And when was Woodstock? 69, 68. Yeah. Yeah. And this preceded Woodstock. and uh, And I went... So they're all doing their love-ins all over L.A., and I remember the one at Griffith Park, and they had it on the six o'clock news. And imagine a news show today at six o'clock that would show topless girls shaking, (laughs) shaking their, you know, shaking it up because they're they're playing some rock band. Would have been there possibly the Doors, uh, playing "Light My Fire," and then you go jump up there to 1972, just three years later. And deep throat is playing down at the corner theater, and soon at a neighborhood theater by your house so from from there you go from sixty five when I first started out and and go go dancing was banned in uh the bar I worked with at Abner's Five in Long Beach. Long Beach Band, go-go dancing. And think of these silly dances that were in the style of the time. The funky chicken, the pony, <laughs> the silly twist, the twist and shout, shake your booty, whatever that meant to anyone. Okay, and then the monkey, the shingling, the boogaloo. Do those, those dances sound like something pornographic that you can't let your grandma see? And then suddenly there's Linda Lovelace. Poor little thing in 1972, a whole movie about Deep Throat. And uh, who cared about bikinis and who cared about twisting and shouting. And then the Pussycat Theaters were proliferating and showing movies and got rid of the strippers because they weren't, they weren't uh, wild enough. You did it. You did it.
0: Good. Kay. That's a great story. Okay, so we've got to... This is about your path, so now we need you to tell us about some of your publications. You mentioned Epic Glottis earlier on, so uh-huh. just so if we're, we're going to put these on the, the website. So tell us about some of the books of yours that people can purchase okay. that, that obviously are the end of your path, of, of your That's writing. That's
4: right, my end of my path, uh, which isn't over yet, I don't think, because I'm waiting for my, uh, my memoir, Tales of an Ancient Go-Go Girl, <laughs> to be published, and uh, that's uh, and actually, I started that if you can believe this or not when I was 34. And it was then called uh, I showed uh, Bukowski the mock up of it in 1974 when I had named it I was trying to decide whether to name it The Crotch Watchers or, <laughs> or Tales of an Ancient Go Go Girl. Bukowski said, Look, you can't name it that because you're not ancient yet. So he preferred Crotch Watchers. Uh, and the, that little collection was about 30 pages. It was a little mock-up and uh, that I had uh, typed up on my IBM Selectric with a cartoon on the cover. And it included uh, stories, little short stories and poems that I had modeled after Bukowski's uh, uh writings that I saw in Wormwood in the small presses of little stories, little short stories that were I don't, poems, one-page stories or two-page stories, little prose stories, flash fiction it's called now. And so that was, when I showed that at UCI when I was accepted there for an MFA, Oakley Hall told me, well, burn this. You can't ever have this published. He didn't want me to write about the go-go world. He thought it was tawdry. And uh, even though by then it was obsolete, it had become quite innocent. So over the years, I wrote about other things. I wrote about the movies a lot. And I was really happy to... got to do that, and I got that from John O'Hara and... uh, and, and Edward Field. When I read their books about the movies, I thought, "Oh, great! I can write about the movies," and I did. I've written oh, maybe maybe a hundred poems about the movies. And I wrote about the Gogo World. I wrote about my mother. I wrote about falling leaves and all the pretty stuff and I, everything I could think of. And I've been published quite a bit along the way, and probably over a thousand journals and newspapers, etc., since 1973. And um, I've had about 21, 22, I forget how many, books and chapbooks uh, uh, published uh, significant, significantly. My first collection, my book was Jehovah Jukebox in 1993 from Event Horizon. that's out of print. And in 98, I was published in England by by the poetry business, Smith Doorstop Press the Pow Wow Cafe, which I'm proud to say was a finalist, one of 50 finalists for the Forward Prize, which is equivalent of American Pulitzer and then later I wrote a lot more chapbooks in the 2000 and, and recently, 2012 Silver Birch found me and she wanted to Published the Bukowski stuff. She's a big Bukowski fan, so I got uh, we put all my my Bukowski stuff together that I had published in Bukowski Review. That that uh, I published five issues of alongside my literary journal Pearl that I I founded in 1974 and I co-edited with Marilyn Johnson, a brilliant technician and artist and wonderful editor and uh this is the 40th year of pearl and we should be celebrating pretty soon our 50th issue so that's what's been going on that i've been mentoring or trying to mentor poets and writers along the way which Marilyn has too and uh, we publish a lot of narrative that's what we like best and uh But we've published uh, Formalism and a lot of other good writings, too. From Bukowski to a nun to a Mouseketeer. We've published A Mouseketeer. And uh, we've published... uh, Gee, I almost said Jim Morrison. I wish I could have uh, uh, published Jim Morrison. But anyway, I'm a big fan of Morrison's poetry, and lately I've become a big fan of The Doors, I wasn't in my days when I was a go-go girl because they were so hard to dance to. <laughs> they just wore you out. And that long, long version of Light My Fire, oh, boy, I'd get so tired uh, dancing to that. I think it's like seven or eight, nine minutes. <laughs> and it'd be on the jukebox, and they'd play it like every quarter. that Every 15 minutes, they'd play again. To save money, they'd play that one. But anyway, I got to meet John Dinsmore. Last uh, June, and that was a thrill. And I told him that I danced live with the doors at the Whiskey one night that I auditioned in, um, I think it was June of 1966 that I auditioned at the Whiskey for a go go job. And I got hired, but I didn't take it because it was so far away from where I lived in Long Beach. And there was no place to park there. Still, still isn't. There's still no place to park. But I met uh, Jim Morrison that night, and I thought he was um, a hippie from the streets that wandered in and jumped up on the stage. And little did I know this man was going to be famous and adored by millions of young men, like like my husband Fred Boss, who was a big fan of of, uh, of Jim Morrison. And then Fred was very thrilled to meet Jim uh, John Densmore last June. And I was, too. So I told John Dismore that I had uh, been a go-go dancer and, and danced live with him one night. And I don't think he believed me. Or does little every little old lady who goes to see John Dismore, do they tell him the same story?
0: I, 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 I don't know. but Have there I,
4: been he, thousands of little old ladies like me that say, Hey, I danced with the Doors at the Whiskey. And he goes, Oh, yes, there, there, dear. But uh, He was a wonderful guy. I liked meeting him.
0: Joe, it is a it is a beautiful, warm, unseasonably warm spring day. We're here with your husband, my wife, you and I. We're overlooking beautiful San Pedro. I can see the St. Vincent Bridge. The sun's getting a little lower in the sky. I want you to leave us with something to remember, Charles Bukowski by. Oh, you're you're making a face. You can do this. Oh. I want you anything. Just just something for people to walk away from and think about Charles Bukowski today.
4: Oh, I always think of something wonderful after someone asks me that. <laughs> oh, let me think. Let me. Here's what I always. One of the things I I want to often remember afterwards. I named my uh, literary profile I wrote about Charles Bukowski that Silver Birch Press published. I named it Epic Glottis. Because one night when Bukowski and I were uh, talking on the phone on um, his birthday, August 16th, 1976, the year of the bicentennial, I said to him, Bukowski, someday, I called him, I said, I called him Epic Glottis. And he laughed and he, he thought that was very clever of me to think of this, make up this neologism. And so I said, Bukowski, someday, you're going to be the greatest poet in the world. And he says, ah, oh, I already am. And he had about, he had at least 10 or ten more books to write in 1976. He never lacked for confidence. And he was a delight that way. To see his, his confidence that, to me, I never saw it as arrogance. I didn't know him that well. Uh... As far as I know, he was humble but very confident in himself. He loved being a writer. He loved being a poet. And when you're a writer and a poet and you love what you're doing, that's what it's all about.
0: You did it. You did it. I wanna thank you. I want you to I wanna thank I, you. And I hope and I was well, I, I, I want, I, at
4: this time.
0: I want you to say goodbye. Thank you.
4: Oh okay. Goodbye.
0: Hi, my name is Frank Gallagher, and I'm here in uh, San Marino, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast for the week of May 26, 2014. Our guests this week were Karsten Kastener. She is a Long Beach entrepreneur who runs Berlin Bistro and Portfolio Coffee, and we also spoke with Long Beach resident and poet Joan Job smith We want to hear from you because we like it. We like getting emails. We like getting tweets, shout-outs on tweets. Kim, you're making a face. I don't know how to use Twitter, and you do. I'm sorry. Tell us how to provide feedback and and maybe just a a sentence on on grammar for Twitter.
1: (laughs) No, I'm not giving you any. The worst thing in the world, Richard, would be if you started using social media. In fact, (laughs) I remember you were an early adopter of Twitter, and if you go and look at your tweets, they all say, Washing dishes, <laughs> cleaning the pond, <laughs> uh doing laundry. <laughs> it's it's kind of conceptual. No, if you if you if you want to tell uh, us my what,
0: my first tweet was I just saw Mary Warren off in our veterinarian's office.
1: Which is true. Which is true. Um and a small dog, I assume? A small a shepherd. She, a, shepherd. Oh, a large dog. Oh that's nice. Warhol stars and their purebred dogs. Uh, a book. If you want to let us know what you think of the podcast, send us an email. You can't eat the sunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esotork.com. You can also um, come and see us at an Esotork bus adventure or one of the lava events that Richard or I host or both of us host. You can also, if you're so inclined, rate the podcast on the iTunes page, which helps people who like similar podcasts find it. We appreciate your feedback.
0: Thank you. Okay, Kim. So I want to take a breath. Why? Because you're about to bring us home. You're about to give us the list of upcoming tours. Okay, and we're gonna, we're going to take this on home. And before we do that, I want I want to thank you for your continued participation in my life, Kim. Because I really love you, and really blessed to have you as my wife. Okay, so thank you for everything. And I know you're gonna you're gonna bring us home with this list of we got the next five or six tours coming up. So Kim, bring us home.
1: Yeah, summer's coming, and if you haven't gotten on the bus yet, it might be a good time to think about it. We've got some wonderful tours in the immediate future. Uh, not quite summer yet, but on May 31st, it's Eastside Babylon. Eastside Babylon, Eastside Babylon. Yes, my most unhinged crime bus tour. It is a dark one. It is a weird one. It's a funny one, a wacky one. And it takes us from Montebello to Boyle Heights to East Los Angeles, City of Commerce. I know we go to the City of Commerce, Richard. It's, it's a total hoot, and... Uh, if you're looking for a very weird excursion into L.A. crime history, yeah, you can't go wrong with that one. On June the 7th, we'll be downtown for our downtown double feature, Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice, a tour about beautiful interiors, terrible crimes, and the lost entertainment zone of Broadway and Main Street and all of the wild, wild um, enjoyments that old Angelinos experienced, such as freak shows, B-girls shooting galleries. Very weird stuff. And, again, some exquisite hotel interiors. 24-hour safety
0: deposit
1: boxes. 24-hour safety deposit boxes are a really bad idea. Do not deposit your money at 2 in the morning. Pasadena Confidential with Crime Bow the Clown is June the 14th. That is our tour that talks about rocket science, where it meets... Black Sex Magic, which will also be the subject of our June of Sunday Salon. Yes, the Jack Parsons death site is on that tour. We also get to go out with Crimebo the Clown onto Suicide Bridge and talk about some of the people who took the fatal leap. And, of course, because it's past Sedina, we have eccentric millionaires and their out-of-control lifestyles. It's a fun tour. Weird West Adams is June 21st A tour about one of the earliest suburbs in the city of L.A., some terrible things that happened to the people there, and also how the city grew and how it became um, a flashpoint in the... uh, in the the change in uh, housing law yes, nationally, racial, racial, racial covenants. Covenant. So an interesting sort of mix of true crime and social history and, and progressive thought. Um, have a couple weeks off then on July the 12th, it's Haunts of a Dirty Old Man, the Charles Bukowski Tour, which hopefully you're in the mood for, having listened to Joan Job Smith's interview. Our once-a-year Tom Waits' Bud's adventure, Crawling Down Cahuenga, hosted by my compatriot in rock and roll anthologies, David Smay with myself, is on July 19th, and if you're a Waits fan, you really can't go wrong with this uh, bus adventure into East Hollywood, West Hollywood, Hollywood, and downtown locations that help to feed the spirit of the young Tom Waits while he was developing his voice and before he left the city forever. So highly recommend it, and please spread the word on that one, because we don't do a lot of music tours, and it's uh, not our usual audience that we're looking for. Unless, of course, our usual audience likes True Crime, Bukowski, and Tom Waits, which isn't completely out of the question. But in any case, please do spread the word. And also, if you visit our uh, Facebook page, you might find that we're uh, giving away a ticket on that bus if you tweet or Facebook like See, or something you just, like that.
3: You just,
0: you just gave a guideline. For uh, not
1: for you, though. Don't pay attention. You can't okay. enter that contest. You have a seat on the bus. And finally, July the 26th... Um, Well, I mean, there'll be other tours coming up, but uh, this is the last tour we're going to mention today. Our most popular crime bus tour, the real Black Dahlia tour that asks not who killed Best Short, because, honey, we ain't going to find that one out in our lifetime, maybe when we're dead, but... We do ask who she was and why we should care and what the life of these transient young women in post-war L.A. was like that led her to her doom. It's a tour about uh, that lost downtown that we look at on Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice as well and also about investigations and how they can somehow spiral out of control and teach us a lot about the city we live in. So that's on July 26th, and uh, you should get on that bus if you're interested in 40s L.A., which we certainly
3: are.
0: You did it, Kim. Thank you. you. You were done. You brought us on home. I appreciate that. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to encourage you to continue to listen and, and please let us let us hear from you. We love that. and I want to remind you
1: One Rufus, we love you. two, you can't eat the sunshine
2: You can't eat the sunshine, but you can't make a bee line for the best of the coastline. Long-lost neighborhood Called Herbin Between South